I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence, we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. We got chapters 17 through 19 of 3rd Nephi. And this is a continuation of the visit of Jesus Christ to the people in the Americas. And 17 kind of starts out as if he's reached the end of a, a preaching session or a meeting of some sort, you know? Because it's like when he had spoken these words, he looked around about again in the multitude and said unto them, Behold, my time is at hand. He's kind of saying, I've done what I've come to do for now, and I, I need to take off. And he even tells them, you know, go to your houses, think about this stuff, pray about it that you can understand and prepare your minds for the morrow when I come unto you again. He wants to give them time to process because just imagine everything that he's done in this short period of time. He's like, it's probably a good idea if you take a minute to go and talk amongst yourselves and pray about what you've seen and just kind of process through it. Which is kind of like conference and it kind of reminds me of general conference how we have these sessions they could probably do the whole thing in one day you know just keep it going keep it running tune in when you can but instead we have it divided in these two-hour segments and i think the the two-hour segments are partly a function of you know you lose your attention after a while but also to give you a break to kind of process what you've heard and and learn from the prophets and so it's kind of interesting how that pondering is just as important as as listening. Yeah, I like how perceptive the Savior is. In verse 2, he says, I perceive that ye are weak, and ye cannot understand all my words. Therefore, in verse 3, therefore go into your homes and ponder the things which I have spoken unto you, and prepare for your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. And then he tells them, and while you do that, I'm going to do go show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel and do some other things, and I'll be back, right? Yeah. But then... In verse 5, he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude and beheld they were in tears and did look steadfast upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little. I like how they haven't said anything. Yeah, yeah. He, he's only perceiving. First, he's perceiving you guys are tired. Go relax. Go have some dinner. Go think about these things. Tomorrow we will continue. But they, it's almost as if they've forgotten themselves and their physical needs because they are just in awe and they want him to not leave right and so then in verse six behold my bowels are filled with compassion towards you and then he asks them for their sick 
And then in verse 8, again, he says, I perceive that ye desire that I show unto you what I have done unto your brethren at Jerusalem. And I see that your faith is sufficient that I should heal you. And then, again, he's very perceptive. And the people, they have these desires. And he's reading, not reading, but he, well, reading the desires of their hearts. He, he knows what they need before they ask, you know, before they even ask. And, and in, in no way are these people asking or wanting these things out of proof or jealousy or why did you do this over there, not to us? Why, you know, it, it's all different, you know. And there are times when the Lord is asked for a sign from non-believers and he says no what sign would i give you what greater sign can i give you than what the prophets have given you and in this scenario with his saints they are not asking for a sign they're just they just i don't know they believe they have faith we know you did these things we know and i don't know i i just it's really interesting just how how thoughtful the savior is and how much like his compassion it's almost as if the Lord delights in being generous, you know. He's not doing the very minimum here. Yeah. To just complete his father's assignment. Well, I went and told him what you told me. I'm out of here, right? Yeah. It's not he doesn't do he's he goes above and beyond. He's living what he preaches. If if a man asks you to go one mile, go if he asks you for thy coat coat, give him thy cloak also, you know, that, that those kind of things. And right here he's kind of showing us that where they, they just kind of didn't want him to leave. Therefore, he stays with them longer. He heals their sick. And he continues to minister to them. Yeah. I'm, part of my my academic studies was I studied culture and, and intercultural communication. And it's interesting because there's a concept of of cultures that are they're called high context. And in this in this sense, the they don't necessarily say everything they're thinking. They don't necessarily, they're not direct in their communication. A lot of times they'll, they'll, you kind of have to read, it's called like reading the air. You kind of have to understand what they're really getting at. They say something, well, what does that really mean? Or they make, their body language has a lot of significance more than just what, you know, picking up a cup might mean more than just picking up a cup. And in this sense, he's in a situation where they're not saying anything, but he looks at them and sees I, I get the feeling that you you want me to stay longer, right? They looked steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to steer, tarry a little longer with them. And he perceives that. But it's also like, I understand that you probably have too much respect for me to say, please stay. Just don't leave us. Okay, he's got to go. Nobody's saying anything, but we really, really want him to stay. But no one says any of that, right? Because it would be disrespectful to say, hey, we don't want you to go. We want you to stay here. We don't care what else you have to do. We want you to stay with us. We, we've we enjoyed this a lot. And yet, without anybody needing to say anything, he perceives that. He picks up on that and is generous enough with his time to say, yeah, I understand that that you don't want me to go. And okay, so what, what should we do? Let's Let's take care of your sick. Let's go a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that I did in Jerusalem. I, I I know you know I've done miracles, and you're probably wondering, when is it your turn? And you would never ask, because you'd probably perceive that to be a disrespectful thing to do. Can you please heal us? You'll never ask that. It would seem offensive, right? But for him, he looks at it, and he's like, 
this I know that this is what you want, and I have my my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. Like I'm not gonna make you say it. I'm not gonna make you ask for it. I know it's what you want, and I'm gonna offer it. And that's a generous God, you know. Well, I I also like I look at um, like there there are times when when we we come to grips with our situation or our trials, and we move past them, and then and then it seems like then the Lord lifts that trial. Yeah, and and it's and it's like wow. Not only was I able to find a way to function with this, but now that I found a way to function, I don't even have to do. It's almost like a like there are things in our lives where we experience turmoil or pain, or we have to adjust either because our bodies, our minds, our situation, our family, our social economic status, whatever, is different than someone else's. And they, they may, we may perceive that they have a greater benefit where we have something that makes our life harder. Not only does the Lord alleviate our burdens, but he makes us strong so we may don't even feel them, you know, that we can continue to have success. You look at Nephi with his bow, you know, he had an amazing bow made of steel uh, he, and, and it broke and the Lord still gave him the successful outcome with a wooden bow. So I, I don't know. I just think that that when Christ, he's interested in, in not just alleviating our burdens, but teaching us and helping us grow, you know. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes what we think is a trial is not a punishment. It's an opportunity. And at the time it's really hard to view those things as opportunities or 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 something that's going to make us better but if we endure to the end of those trials we'll be able to look back and say you know because i went through this i now have a different perspective or i now have additional strength or i'm more resilient or i was able to overcome or i developed another talent to help me compensate for this lack of talent you know, you know? I think it's always important to remember that we're here on earth. We're in a development phase. We're not done yet. And the Savior is continuously uh, trying to show us that, that, you know, they're, you know these people, they, they've gone, they, I don't know how long this period of time is, whether it's a week or two weeks or, or several days, but they've gone from outer, utter destruction, the cities and the hills and the valleys and that people dying, even their their kindred and, and their friends, even though the, most of them are the righteous ones, I'm sure it wasn't pretty to see uh, other people's deaths and, and and destructions and things. To now they are in probably the happiest they've ever been, ever, here with the Savior. And I like how when, when he kneels and prays for, for them and the children, in verse 16, it says, the eye has never seen neither hath the ear heard before so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. And no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of man conceive so great and marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak. And no one can conceive of the joy that filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father. You know, they, they're, they're being filled with such immense joy as they see the Savior 
being the mediator. And that, that's his ultimate role. He stands between us and, and the Father and pleads for us. And he gives himself as, as the, the sacrificial lamb. So he absorbs the justice of all the laws we've broken so that a mercy can be extended to us. He, 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 he places himself in the garden there in between us and our mistakes. So then he can teach us, help us do better and improve. Well, it even influenced him. I mean, look at verse 20. It says, blessed are ye because of your faith and now behold, my joy is full. Even he himself, who is at this point, he knows everything. He, he's experienced everything there is to experience. He's even getting tremendous satisfaction out of seeing the faith of this people. And 21, and when he had said these words, he wept and the multitude bare record of it. And he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the father for them. And in verse 23, um, after he finished his blessing them, he turns to the multitude and says unto them, behold, your little ones. And this is a really interesting experience because he's almost saying like, here's the, the next generation. Here are the rising children that will take over after you're gone. And 24, and as they looked to behold, they cast their eyes towards heaven and they saw the heavens open and they saw angels descending out of heaven as if it were in the midst of fire. And they came down and encircled those little ones about and they were encircled about with fire and the angels did minister unto them. So I'm trying to like picture this and understand what it is that's happening. And I think that in, in society, in the world, we, we see angels as being these like holy creatures that uh, bring warnings, bring advice, they bring news. They, what, what is an angel, right? And what, what purpose are they serving when it says they did minister unto them? And there's a really good article on the church's website, churchofjesuschrist.org. It says, it's, it says, the title is question, are there guardian angels? And if so, what do they do? It's interesting because they kind of talk about <laughs> um, what angels are. Joseph Smith said, angels who minister to the earth are those who belong to it or have belonged to it. Suggesting that we ourselves can serve as angels for others, but also those who have belonged to it. Uh, and I get the impression, and this is kind of just my understanding, that a lot of this, these angels that are coming down and ministering to these children, they could have been some of the ancestors that, of those children, of those people that came down and are kind of saying, giving, uh, bearing testimony of what the Savior has done for these children, the blessing that he's given them. And guardian angels, you know, they there's also this concept in the world that guardian that everyone has a guardian angel watching over them and protecting them. And at the end of this article, Bruce, Arm, there's a quote from Bruce R. McConkie, who wrote, To suppose that either all men or all righteous men have heavenly beings acting as guardians for them runs counter to the basic revealed facts revealed relative to the manner in which the Lord exercises his benevolent watchfulness over his mortal men. Basically saying, you don't have a guardian angel that's protecting you from everything all the time. What you have is your agency. What you have is the Holy Ghost to guide you. But in these moments where the angels are ministering, I think it's different than being a guardian angel with you all the time, keeping you safe. Well, I think I think also that idea, it, although nice, like it's yeah. very comforting to think that someone someone's always watching you. It kind of limits the fact that your guardian angel is Jesus Christ. 
Right. There, there is no greater person or anyone that's more interested in your well-being. And he does not tire. And as the scripture says, I am the keeper at the gate and I employ no servant there. Meaning he is there and he will. He hasn't failed us and will never fail us. And so I think sometimes we we like to think that, that we have a dedicated person, almost like a server, customer service rep <laughs> who's dedicated to and tailored to be so attentive to us because the manager gets busy. Yeah. And 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 what and that's kind of a weird earthly way of thinking about it because everything Jesus Christ explains to us, he says he is not busy. His work in his glory and him and the Father and the Holy Ghost, their whole purpose is your exaltation, bringing about your exaltation. Okay. Yeah. And not only that, but we see countless examples why the individual is so important to think that he's going to be like, ah, oh, just send one of my angels, you know, instead of he himself being interested in our well-being, our spiritual well-being, and our salvation, um, goes counter to everything he exhibited in the whole first part of this visit to the Americas. Now, bring all the yeah. children. Bring all your sick. Everyone, I want you to come and experience the, the marks in my hands, feet, and side. You know, it's like the individual matters. And I think, I, going back to this kind of experience that these children are having, I think he's blessed them. I think he has... He's presenting them back to their the multitude, back to the parents by saying, behold your little ones, almost like these. this is the future. These are the ones you need to protect. And then as a testimony to what he's done and to who these children will be, um, these angels come down. And, you know, we, we've heard the spirit being compared to a pillar of fire. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that what that looks like. I think it's a uh, the closest approximation to how we can explain what is visually being presented there. It looks like fire. It looks like something. I doubt that it's actually fire. I don't know. But I think those angels coming and ministering, it just feels like this is a moment of connection between past, present, and future. Ancestors from the oh. past coming to testify, the present people who are there witnessing this, and he's saying, here are, is your future. You know, the, the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, there, you know, we, we do know that all of our temple work is one done to seal families together. Yeah. And, and the promise of Elijah is, you know, that the hearts of the father of the children would turn to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And I view that as you have to become aware that one, there are many that came before you. And you may be born into their covenants and, and you have a responsibility, you know, to to be faithful, to live up to the sacrifice that they have so you can have the scriptures, so you can have a promised land, so you can you can have an opportunity. And likewise, once you are given an opportunity, you therefore have a responsibility to look back to your ancestors and make sure that the work is done for them so they have an opportunity. So it works both ways. You need to be cognizant and aware of where you came from and, and the great blessings and, 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 and faithfulness that your ancestors portrayed and live, live up to that and not squander those blessings. Or if your ancestors have never had a blessings and you're the first one to know about these truths, then you need to go to the temple and make sure that they have an opportunity to receive these blessings through you. If you look at verse 14, um, when he says, um, 
Well, in verse 13, he's standing in the midst of the children. And in verse 14, it says, Jesus groaned with him in, himself and said, Father, I am troubled because of the wickedness of the people of the house of Israel. And I view that as like, sometimes when you have your child in your arms and you think, man, the world they have to live, grow up in. Oh, why can't you just stay pure like this? And then you think to yourself, but what can I give you? I can give you knowledge. I can give you the gospel. That's I won't be there as a parent to solve every problem, nor should I be. I have to teach you so you can grow up to think for yourself, to make good decisions, and to rely on your Father in heaven, and to pray and learn how to learn and learn how to seek answers. Because your situations, I mean, we were dealing with um, stay in school, that's cool. And we had a dare program, and you know, and kids nowadays have you know vastly different things. It's about socially being accepted and likes and 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 image, you know, things being sent over the internet and and just totally different issues that they have to deal with. And we, we as parents, maybe it's part of the blessing and the design of getting old, we become outdated. If we're if we're a virus protector, we become outdated. We won't. It's really hard for us to keep. And and if if our job we think is always to filter, it's we need to filter at the beginning, so they begin to establish you know you know five ten years of age, and then we need to start giving them the ability to learn how to use their own filter and how to follow Heavenly Father, how to receive revelation, and then they will filter the things in their generation, and then they can do that for their kids and so on and so on. Well, it's not a it's not a coincidence that the age of accountability, the age of baptism, is around eight years old, because before that, yeah, they probably can. Do, does a three year old know right from wrong? In some cases, yes. They know what they've been told is okay and what is not okay. In uh, you know certain actions, it's not okay. My daughter the other day went and took the Hershey's chocolate syrup out of the fridge put it onto a spoon and started eating it right off the spoon. And I'm like, where did you get it? That's not okay. And she knew it. And she was like, oh, I'm in trouble. And, you know, she knows right from wrong as, as far as that goes. But it gets a lot more complex than that. And they don't really understand. By the time they're eight years old, there's still a lot of things that they probably don't understand. But they have a lot better understanding of conceptual morality, you know, of right and wrong and what is harmful to someone else and how it might impact someone else. And at that point, you don't have to do as much filtering because hopefully you've taught the principles of, you know, you want to do things that will benefit others and not harm others. And like you said, by the time they're teenagers and older, it's like a lot of this needs to be their own filtering system. And a lot of, their, a lot of that needs to be their own understanding of their standing with God. And you can't just constantly be hovering over them or they'll never learn to do their own filtering. Well, I like how, you know, we went from uh, Christ perceives that they're tired and, and come back on the morrow to you want me to tarry longer? I will. And let me heal your sick and your afflicted and, and those with that are mean or mute or blind. And then bring me your kids and then let me pray for you guys. And then be ministered and and you know kind of just a wow and then in that i think in that thought of like now how do you 
retain our remission of your sins? How do you retain or maintain? What's the maintenance plan for this new lifestyle or these new habits that you need to be creating? He institutes the sacrament. And that's in verse 18. You know, he he take he, you know, he commands that there should be wine and bread brought. And uh, and first they in verse four, and they had eaten and were filled. And so he's kind of letting them know we're gonna eat together. But this sacrament isn't just about eating, you know, now that you've taken care of your physical needs. Once again, he's being very perceptive to their needs. And <laughs> in, in five, once uh Behold, there shall be one ordained among you. To him I will give power that he shall break bread and bless it and give it unto the people of my church, unto all those who shall believe and be baptized in my name. And verse 6, And this shall ye always observe to do, even as I have done, even as I have broken bread and blessed it and giving it unto you. I like how his pattern tends to be, I will give you an example. Then I will ask you to do this. It's never I'll ask you to do something I haven't shown you how to do. Even if he's going to do it right after, he, yeah. he always like, I don't know, just very wise. But um, it's also it's also interesting how he puts those two acts at the, one after another, but makes a distinguishing difference between them. OK, we're going to sit down. Everyone sit down. We're going to eat. The disciples eat. The multitude eats. Everyone's filled. OK, that was great. Now we're going to do the sacrament. And by, by doing them side by side, he can show this is not a meal. This is not a normal. I mean, you're, you're starting with the basic fundamentals right here. You know, you're teaching something that maybe they've never done before. Well, they probably haven't. Even if the prophets have talked about something, they haven't done a sacrament in this way before. And so he's showing them the difference between taking the sacrament and performing that ordinance and having a normal, regular, everyday meal. These are two separate events, right? We're going to eat first so that everyone is filled, and this is not an issue of what are we going to eat, how much are we going to eat, you know, is the bread flavored with honey, or is it just straight bread? You know, it's just, look, you guys have already eaten. Now we're going to do the ordinance. And by, by setting that designation, I think he's able to teach the importance of the sacrament as an elevated ordinance over just a regular common everyday task meal everyone's got to eat but this is a different thing this is different and i think that's a, a really masterful way of teaching to be honest um to do it by by putting them right next to each other one after another and yet showing a huge difference between the two well in in verse seven he explains well in verse six what she have done this you shall break bread and bless it and remember in remembrance of my body. Mm -hmm. Verse 10, and when the disciples had done this, so he's now done it and the disciples are, are, are following suit. Blessed are ye for this thing which ye have done, for this is a fulfilling of my commandments. And this does witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. And this shall ye always do to those who repent and are baptized in my name. And ye shall do it in remembrance of my blood which I have shed for you, which ye shall witness unto the Father, that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall always have my spirit to be with you. So I feel like, again, he's preparing them for now I'm going, now I, when I'm not with you, you need to do this so you can always have my spirit to be with you. I don't know. I, I 
this time reading this this go around during this uh, year, I don't know that I remember the Savior speaking so much about the sacrament. I know he speaks about, you know, when they do it in the New Testament, but never to this amount of detail, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially when he just says, uh, in, in verse 10, really struck home to me because he said, blessed are ye for doing this thing which ye have done, for is the fulfilling of my commandment. And this does witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do the things which I have commanded you. So it almost, in one hand, it, it feels as if, do this that I ask of you. Break bread weekly. Think of me. Think of my sacrifice. That act alone will bring you blessings. Let alone you repenting, retaining a remission of your sins. You're not doing all those things. But just being obedient brings blessings, you know, and shows that you're willing to receive more. And how easy it is to not do it. We don't have time. There's too many people. We don't have enough bread. We don't have, you know, whatever it may be. And he's saying, look, if you're able to do this simple task, it will show to the Father how obedient you are to all of his commandments. Doing such a simple thing it illustrates your, your obedience and your willingness to follow. I think it also really changes your perspective on what the sacrament is about. A lot of times we think of it very internally as being about where do I stand? Who am I? How am I doing? But it's also a way of showing homage to the sacrifice the Savior made for you. When you take the bread, it's to think about his body and the marks and the things that he went through. And when you take the water, it's to think about the sacrifices that he went through throughout his entire ministry and beyond. It's it's definitely more meaningful than just, okay, yeah, we do this for this reason and one plus one equals two. If I do this, then I'll have his spirit with me. You know, it's it's deeper than that. It's a self-reflection time. It's also a paying honor and respect to what he did for us at the same time. I, I had a bishop, you know, I was in the teacher's quorum advisor at the time. And the bishop was speaking to the teachers, deacons, and priests about preparing and passing the sacrament. And some of the, you know, at the beginning, it was very much some some practical things like be here on time, dress the part, you know, be sure. But then he 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 explained how how should we be act, how should we act during this uh, ceremony, and he kind of explained we should be very solemn. This is a funeral. There on the sacrament table, underneath that cloth, is the Savior, and he he's dead. Uh, for us, he died for us, and uh, as I, as he explained it that way, I never, I've never thought about it before. That underneath that cloth, covering the bread and water, is the Savior, and we are here thinking about. He gave his life for me in a very real way, and how would I act? Would I be thinking about? Oh, I got I got my lesson. I got to leave early to go to the library and grab a projector. I got you know how. <laughs> It can just, and it's not, I don't think people do it on purpose. We don't do it on purpose, but it's a risk at doing something every week. It can become ordinary. It can become mundane. It can become a routine. And that's what we need to guard against when it comes 
about the sacrament. We need to try and be actively making sure it doesn't become ordinary. It doesn't become mundane. It doesn't just become a routine. Because then I think it's it's just like prayer. Praying with real intent is just so much better and beneficial than praying 30 times a day and having just miniature rote, rote uh, prayers, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting also how he starts talking about when they're supposed to be meeting. Uh, meet together oft in verse 22. Behold, ye shall meet together oft, and ye shall not forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together, but suffer them that they may come unto you and forbid them not. And ye shall pray for them and shall not cast them out. And if it so be that they come unto you oft, ye shall pray for them unto the Father in my name. And he goes on, hold up your light that it may shine into the world. Behold, I am the light which ye hold up, that which ye have seen me do. Behold, ye see that I have prayed unto the Father and ye have all, and ye all have witnessed. It's It goes back to what we just heard in conference. Be one, right? And if ye are not one, ye are not mine. And he's speaking not only to members of the church here. And neither were they just speaking to members of the church in general conference. I mean, above all else, we should definitely be the ones setting the example of being one, being unified. But he's not saying, I only want members of the church to be one. He's saying, everyone, don't tell people they can't come in. Welcome them in. Pray for them. Help them to learn the gospel and be baptized. And then he goes on um, in verse 29, going back to the sacrament, or 28, I guess. In verse 28, And now behold, this is the commandment which I shall give unto you, that ye shall not suffer anyone knowingly to partake of my flesh and blood unworthily, when ye shall minister it. For whoso eateth and drinketh my flesh and blood unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to his soul. Therefore, if ye know that a man is unworthy to eat and drink of my flesh and blood, ye shall forbid him. Nevertheless, and this is the most important part here. Ye shall not cast him out from among you, but ye shall minister unto him and shall pray for him unto the Father in my name. And if it so be that he repenteth and is baptized in my name, then shall ye receive him and shall minister unto him of my flesh and blood. It's not an exclusionary thing. It's not, oh, you're not in the club or you're not, uh, you know, you haven't paid your membership dues or your subscription is up. If you are not worthy, yeah, you know what? This is this is an ordinance that's very sacred. But it's not that we don't want you to take it. We do want you to take it under the right circumstances. And I think that just shows a lot of the order that the, the gospel is about. Even the temple, it's sacred. Not everyone can just go in. I think one of the most challenging and painful things for people is especially when they um, are getting married or when a family member is getting married and they have members of the family that aren't members of the church or or are inactive and they're not allowed to go into the temple and it's just kind of like oh so i'm invited but i can't go because it's in your special room you know well that's really disrespectful to me and it's not that it's exclusionary what it is is that we want everyone to experience it under the proper circumstances having received the knowledge necessary having received the testimony necessary. We had, we had on my mission, we had a branch president who kind of went out of his way to tell us as we brought investigators to church on Sunday, not to let them have the sacrament because of the scripture. Um, and we felt like that was not right. And so we took it to the mission president and the mission president 
showed us in the handbook of instructions that um, no one will be told they can't have the sacrament. You know? right. uh, and so they had to talk to that branch president and, and all that stuff, right? But, um, but that's also, you know, I think the warning for damnation unto your soul is when you, we know that damnation occurs when you have full knowledge of what you're doing. Right. It doesn't occur to a seven-year-old or a six-year-old or a baby who takes a sacrament. It also doesn't occur to an investigator that does. Christ has made it very clear that those who don't know better, he deals with that himself. Yeah. Those that do know better, which I think the warning is for us, for us right. who have made the covenant, that we don't go take the sacrament for appearance only, unworthily, you, you know, that kind of thing. Which is another reason why, I don't know, it's so important to have the structure or the, the organization that the church provides. And in verse 35, as, as Jesus, well, in 34, I give these commandments because disputations have been among you, and blessed are you, no disputations. And so he's trying to tell them that, therefore, keep these things which I have commanded you, that ye come not under condemnation for woe unto him whom the Father condemneth. So he's trying to explain to them, you know, this principle of like, don't make light of this ordinance. Yeah. Don't do it falsely. Do it with real intent. If you make these promises and don't keep them, you're under condemnation. And, and so when he leaves in verse 35, when he says, I think it's interesting that he says, and now I go to the Father because it is expedient that I should go into the Father for your sakes. I thought that was interesting considering that the people didn't want them to live <laughs> and that we all would act better if he was with us all the time, right? Yeah. But for our sakes, he must go probably so we can demonstrate our obedience, so we can fulfill our second estate, our, our mission here on earth to walk on faith and and choose right from wrong and and to be tested you know but then when he leaves he says he it, he touched his disciples with his hands whom he had chosen one by one until he had touched them all and spake unto them and then it says that the multitude didn't hear but what what the, he said unto them but then the disciples said this is what he told us he gave them power to give the holy ghost and I will show unto you hereafter that this record is true. And it came to pass that when Jesus had touched them all, there came a cloud and overshadowed the multitude, and they could not see Jesus. And when they were overshadowed, he departed from them and ascended into heaven. And the disciples saw, and they bear record that he ascended into heaven. And, I mean, that's so crucial because he's laid hands on the disciples several times. But this last one is so they can, well, other ones, you know, they were all to receive different authorities, different different keys of the priesthood, and different uh, mandates. And that's something we believe very strongly is that the priesthood authority and the authority to administer the ordinances that Jesus Christ has established, that authority comes from him. And it's passed through the laying on of hands by someone who holds the keys and the authority of that priesthood, right? And yeah. we've seen that happen in the scriptures, 
in the Old Testament, New Testament, in the Book of Mormon, and others. And we see that happening in our day. We believe that um, Joseph Smith, when 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 the time was appropriate, he had John the Baptist come to him and restored the Aaronic priesthood, and Peter, James, and John, and restored the Melchizedek priesthood, and Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and other prophets restore other keys of the priesthood, the gathering of Israel, and, and so on, and the sealing power, and all of these are passed from one individual to another. And it has to be by the laying on of hands, so people cannot just take this upon themselves and say, oh, I had a feeling that now I'm a prophet. No, it has to be by the laying on of hands. And that continues to our day, to President Nelson, having yep. the authority, which keeps the doctrine pure, which gives him the right to say, we can now have the sacrament and, and, and all of that. And it gets passed down all the way to the the man in the, in the church that can have the priesthood so they can administer in the ordinances and to the women also because they are called under priesthood authority they too are exercising priesthood power when they exercise their callings when they work in the temple and when they are officially on the errand of the lord they too are using that same priesthood to bless the lives of each all all of us all the, all the our whole family here honor <laughs> yeah i think that's that's a really important point because he's trying to teach all of these principles in a really kind of short period of time, right? He's teaching the sacrament. He's teaching laying on of hands and authority. In chapter 19, he starts teaching about prayer and the proper way to do it and gives kind of the example of how to do it. Because this is like another day, right? He, he ascended up and then he comes back down. And when he comes back down, he kind of goes right into teaching them how to pray. And we go over certain things. They, they get baptized. They receive the Holy Ghost, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Once again, they're ministered to by angels several times. And uh, it's pretty interesting, though, because he's it's stuff that's probably not completely foreign to them. I mean, the prophets have prayed. They've talked about the Holy Ghost. They've baptized people. And yet he's doing it with the proper authority and he's doing it in the way to show them this is how i want i want you to do it maybe over time things have changed a little bit and i need to course correct maybe it's just to establish yes this is the proper way to do it but he's very very pleased and in verse 26 after they're praying and they're doing what they're supposed to do in verse 26 and jesus said to them pray on nevertheless they did not cease to pray and he turned from them again and went a little way off and bowed himself to the earth. And he prayed again unto the Father, saying, I thank thee that thou hast purified those whom I have chosen because of their faith. And I pray for them and also for them who shall believe in the, on their words, that they may be purified in me through faith in their words, even as they are purified in me. I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world because of their faith, that they may be purified in me and that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one that I can be glorified in them. It's it's interesting that he has multiple prayers and he's showing here are the reasons why we should pray. And in the, the Sunday School Manual, there's a quote from Elder Richard G. Scott about the value of prayer. And he says, We pray to our Heavenly Father in the sacred name of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, 
Prayer is most effective when we strive to be clean and obedient with worthy motives and are willing to do what he asks. Humble, trusting prayer brings direction and peace. Don't worry about your clumsily expressed feelings. Just talk to your compassionate, understanding father. You're his precious child whom he loves perfectly and wants to help. As you pray, recognize that the Father in heaven is near and he is listening. A key to improved prayer is to learn to ask the right questions. Consider changing from asking for things that you want to honestly thinking what the Lord wants for you. Then as you learn his will, pray that you will be led to have the strength to fulfill it. Should you ever feel distance from our Father, it could be for many reasons. Whatever the cause, as you continue to plead for help, he will guide you to do that which he will restore your confidence and he, that he is near. Pray even when you have no desire to pray. Sometimes, like a child, you may misbehave and feel you cannot approach your father with a problem. That is when you most need to pray. Never feel you are too unworthy to pray. I wonder if we can ever really fathom the immense power of prayer until we encounter an overpowering, urgent problem and then realize that we are powerless to resolve it. Then we will turn to the Father in humble recognition of our total dependence on Him. It helps to find a scheduled, a secluded place where our feelings can be vocally expressed as long and as intensely as necessary. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think the principle is basically you have a direct line to connect you to Heavenly Father. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. He's our intermediary, but you can speak directly to the Father. You don't have to go through uh, through anyone else. And he, it, once again, like you said, it comes down to your intent. It comes down to your willingness to, to follow whatever impressions you get. And just to be honest and earnest in your prayer. Say whatever it is you're feeling. Even if you think it's silly, even if you, as you're vocalizing the words, realize you know, this is such a small problem. Does God even care? He does care. And he wants to hear it. And just by praying, you will be showing him, just like when they did the sacrament, such a simple little thing shows your willingness to be obedient, shows your willingness to follow the commandments. Well, I think it's interesting that we have a pattern here of the Savior. He identifies something that is needed, wanted, or concern he does and which leads to a prayer about that which i think is a good pattern for us to follow because failings or or traps that we can fall into in praying is having like premeditated or predetermined prayers that we have for like our food and this is my morning prayer and this is my evening prayer and it becomes uh repetitive it becomes vain you know and that's how do we maintain meaningful prayers and and i like uh verse 29 father i pray not for the world but for those whom thou has given me out of the world because of their faith that they may be purified in me that i may be in them as thou father art in me and that we may be one and i may be glorified in them when jesus spoke these words he again unto his disciples and behold they did pray stayed fast without ceasing seizing and he did smile upon them again and behold they were white even as jesus and 31 and it came to pass that he went away a little way off and prayed unto the father so it's like it's almost like he's praying and then he goes to his disciples and they're still praying and he smiles upon them and then he goes back and prays again 
And I wonder, you know, if it's gratitude, it's like, I'm so grateful that they're being obedient. I'm going to go express my gratitude to my Heavenly Father. I'm going to go talk to him. You know, what, you know, what do we do now? What, where do we go next? Is it time for this? You know, it's, it's very, uh, I don't know. I feel it's very dynamic what I'm seeing where depending on the multitude and where they're at, he adjusts what he's going to do. Are they ready? Like a really good teacher. Is this student ready to move to division? Or should we stay at multiplication a little bit longer? And and I think it's a good way, a good pattern for us to think when we minister, when we interact with others, we have to go check. Do they understand or did they, is are they receiving? You know, and, and preach my gospel all the time as a missionary, you're trained always to ask follow-up questions to uh, to gauge their understanding of what you just uh, keep taught. And it's very different than the the first missionary discussions that were memorized line for line, like just a rote, blah, 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 blah. and at the end, you want to be baptized. Now it's, you customize it, and then you ask, so what do you think? And depending on what they say, it kind of depends where you go from there. Do we adjust? Do we cover this again? Do we, it teaches, and, and the thing that reminded me of this is, Christ knows all of these things. He knows the intent of people's heart, but he treats them almost as equals. What do you think? What do you should, are, are you hungry? Do you want to go home and, and take a break and I'll come back tomorrow? You know, we really want you to stay longer with us. Okay. It's often that leaders feel like that they know better and therefore they don't need any input from, from their students or from their constituents or whatever you know it's kind of like when when heavenly father calls adam and eve in the garden adam where art thou he knows you know he knows but why does he do it because we have to be accountable you know and that's kind of what jesus shows in these chapters that he's not just this isn't his experience this is the people's experience with him where they, they, he interacts with them. He asks them questions. He shows them things, and and he gives the disciples, and, and he talks to them. You know, I don't know. It's I kind of got a little bit of a glimpse of what he might have felt in that moment when he came back and saw them still praying. Pretty much ever since my daughter was born, one of the things that I do to help her calm down for bed is I sing her "Love One Another" the hymn, and. This week, we've been watching my nephew and put him down for a nap in the middle of the day. And my daughter doesn't nap anymore. She just kind of hangs out and has quiet time. And uh, I noticed that she left her room to go into the other room where he was. And I was like, what is she doing? She just needs to leave him alone. And I go in there, and she was leaning over the edge of the pack and play, singing Love One Another to him to help him fall asleep. And it was this moment of kind of like, I was really proud of her. Not only because it was just a him, but also because she was being compassionate to him. And so kind of getting a glimpse of what, and I know it pales in comparison, but what the Savior felt when he went back and found the disciples still praying, you know, that something he had taught them stuck and they understood it and they were doing it. It it really, you know, that smile, his, his countenance smiled on them, and, you know, I, I kind of... I left her be because I was like, that's fine. I have no problem with her doing that. She's being compassionate and she's also singing a hymn that is 
good and that I've taught her. And I don't know, it was just kind of, as I was reading this, it, that reminded me of that moment. Cause I was like, if I felt really proud of my daughter in that moment, imagine how Christ felt about his disciples. He just called to be the leaders of that people in the Americas. He's taught them a lot in a short period of time and to go back and, and have them still praying and still being faithful and, and being willing to do whatever he commands them to do must have felt really, really uplifting for him. And we know that he has experienced that several times throughout this visit. You know, I'm filled with joy, he keeps saying. Just really, really interesting how we get little glimpses of what the Lord feels sometimes in our own lives. Uh, the thought I was having was uh, um, there's many things where we are to stand where Jesus stood, like we represent him, like as we pass the sacrament, as we say a blessing, a bishop, a teacher, teaching Sunday school, you know, ministering to others. And all of these ordinances are for us to become more like him, to take his name upon us and to others. Uh, as imperfect as we are, we should strive for even the smallest resemblance of what he would do. Because that helps us. It, it really does help us. It helps. It tempers us. It it uh, it smoothens our rough places. It it increases our our Christ-like attributes. We call them Christ-like attributes for a reason. Because they're attributes he holds, the way he thinks, the way he acts. And he knowing that we are far from him as far as perfect, we have the natural man, our tendencies, our cultural biases, our you know self-inflicted uh, addictions or, or harm inflicted by others and others' agency and all of this wild craziness, the best thing he has for us is his example and his willingness to say, follow my gospel. And to all of you, it's a little bit personalized. You know, to some of you, it's going to be you got to work on your temper. Others, you got to work on your organization. Others, you got to take care of your body. Others, you got to not be so vain about your body. You got to adjust this. You got to do that. You got, but it's all to our ability and our understanding. He doesn't ask us to overnight change everything because he himself learned line upon line, precept upon precept. He just asks us follow these patterns. These patterns of these covenants, these commandments, and these these actions and intentions with real intent, with real desire. And what he asks of us is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. If you can get yourself there, he can help us. And then we'll see all of our attributes rise. I love that that um, talk in conference where he, the gentleman, he was talking about the attributes of Christ. And he said... But like a wave in the sea, as we work on one, we can't help but to see all the other boats rise with that wave as well. And if we think about it that way, if we just just do one thing better and get better at that and do another thing better, the, the opposite of this is the overwhelming feeling that we can never measure up, that we'll never be enough, that our mistakes are too grave, our sins too bad, that, that we just, you know, we revert to our old self. It's okay. We can feel this way at church, but when we get home or we're at work or we're, we're arguing with somebody online, we don't feel those feelings anymore. And then you feel guilt because you gave in to the natural man or, or you <laughs> fell short. And Satan wants us to think that this process 
of humility and brokenheartedness and real intent and just taking one step at a time is too simple for the vast problems and the complexities of our world. And when and if we think that, then he wins. Yeah. And in the Savior, he says by simple things, simple things as just take five minutes and readjust, recenter yourself. Now, now act, you know, take, take a, a few seconds and think about this. Or you want to lash out, wait and gain more information. You can always lash out. But once you lash out, you've, it's too late. It's so hard to take it back. Wait for more data. Get more information. Get more perspective. Imagine what why they did their actions, why you're doing yours, and and so on. And you'll find you'll receive strength, you'll avoid embarrassment, and you'll feel approval from your Father in heaven that that you're on the path. You know you're not there yet, but being on the path is where you need to be. The getting there, it takes a lifetime. It takes an eternity. We have a millennial after this. We have we have there's more to come and sometimes it can become i don't know uh, overbearing if you if you feel like why you know why do i keep faltering why can i not be measure up it's like you can't do everything for everybody you're not going to be able to change the world but you can change one person you can change one situation you can do one thing good and you'll see that it's faith builds upon itself and your power and your ability and your will increase, but it will not increase if we are not built upon the rock. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do. Your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places that the spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.